welcome to The Scott Pod, a podcast celebrating the life, work, art and music of Scott Hutchison. Each episode of The Scott Pod will be divided into three parts. The first part is a discussion with a special guest who has done something noteworthy to preserve Scott's legacy. The second part is dedicated to community submissions from those within the Rabbit community to promote all activity that benefits any of Scott's worthy causes. The final part of the podcast is a listener cover submission of any of Scott's songs as chosen by a special guest for that episode. On this episode, I'm joined by our special guest, the fantastic American poet and longtime Scott collaborator, Fran Delario. Fran worked alongside Scott in the release of 2015's If and When We Wake, a collection of poetry written by Fran in the wake of his grandfather's death, which Scott provided stunning illustration for. Fran and Scott would work together again on 2018's Please Plant This Book, a project in aid of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. In 2016, Fran began a second full-length poetry collection called Joy, with Scott once again lined up to provide illustration for the book. While sadly Scott's passing meant Joy doesn't feature his illustrations, a host of poems that feature within the collection discuss Fran and Scott's friendship, the indelible mark Scott left on Fran's life, and Fran's attempts to come to terms with the loss of his good friend. Joy is due to be released on the 21st of June 2022, with a portion of all the proceeds being donated to Tiny Changes, a charity set up in Scott's honour. Fran joined me via Zoom from his classroom in Philadelphia, and whilst recording has the odd patchy moment we've all come to loathe in the current era, our conversation feels like a perfect entryway into this podcast, and was only briefly interrupted by the Pledge of Allegiance, as you'll hear. By way of a trigger warning, there is discussions of school shootings and Scott's death along with the occasional swear word. You have been warned. I'd love to hear how you first discovered Scott's music and Scott's art. Sure. So I was in college. It was, I guess, 2008. I've always been a really big Death Cab for Cutie fan. Um, And I remember I was in my apartment studying for, it was either midterms or finals. I think it was finals of that year. And I was listening to a Death Cab interview while I was writing a final paper, doing something for school. And they had asked Ben Gibbard what he was listening to. And he, he talked about this album called The Midnight Organ Fight that had blown him away. And I was like, all right, if it's good enough for Gibbard, I can give it a shot. Uh, and I was just floored, you know, uh, the, the first time you hear uh, Modern Leper is just a powerful experience. And I remember pulling my wife into the room my who was my girlfriend then and being like you got to listen to this This is incredible we had just missed the tour uh i I was like we got to see this band and they had been in philly like a couple weeks before that or something but when they came around again i guess it was for winter of mixed drinks and i'd actually already started teaching at that point so my wife and i and a friend a teacher friend of ours all went down to see them at this little club in philly had to like walk down the steps to get into the basement to see them and i watched the opening band standing next to scott and I didn't have the the balls to talk to him, but I was like, that's the, that's the guy we're here to see. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was a great concert experience. I had kind of started writing a little bit at that point, but like nothing serious. I hadn't put together. There was no like, I'd like to work with that person in some capacity. It was just, I like this band. And then in another world, I'm doing this. But I guess seeing like the album art, one of the things I, I wish I could get a, a hold of one of them, but Scott released a calendar of these like bearded guys. Each month had like a different bearded fellow on it. And it was, they're hilarious. They're just like these quirky drawings. So a couple years later, 
when I was in grad school getting a degree in poetry, one of my professors had my manuscript, which was like, I don't know, maybe half of If and When We Wake. And he said, you really should try and find somebody to illustrate this. These poems might lend themselves really well to illustrations. And I was like, well, I have an idea that won't happen, but like, I got a, I got a shot in the dark I'm going to take. And so I sent like a really cheesy, I'm a really big fan type Facebook message to the band. And I had had, what was it? I think it was Cognitive Dissonance, which is a poem about going into my grandfather's basement to take a tool after he had passed away, but like still feeling like you're down there and you can kind of feel that person down there. So I had written that, which ended up in the book and it was published in a little magazine. So I had sent him a link to that. This is kind of what the work is like. Uh, And then a couple of days later, I got a message back that said, yeah, send me more stuff. Let's see what we can do. So that was probably 2013. And then, yeah, after that, I graduated in 14 and we went back and forth between 2013 and 2015 when the book came out. It does genuinely seem that that was just Scott's personality through and through. Anytime anyone approached him for help or had an idea of something that they thought it might be a cause that he's interested in, he just seemed to jump at the chance every time. I mean, there was like virtually no ego with, with the guy which is incredible. Like if something seemed cool, there was no like, well, I'm, I'm above that. I've succeed, I've reached a, a level of success that means I don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore. Or who are you to email me? Like there was yeah. nothing, you know, absolutely nothing. You, if you bumped into him at a party and you didn't know who he was, you'd leave thinking that you met just some guy. There was no there was no ego whatsoever. So I'm not one bit surprised. I've, I know a bunch of people that he did a bunch of really kind things for that he didn't have to do. That seems to be who he genuinely was. I've never heard a person that had a bad interaction. Wow. It's been a year since I recorded something on this. I used to write, I used to talk poems into my phone in the car on my way to work, but I haven't used my voice recorder since may 11th 2021 was that a a process driven thing so a a way to practice test them out it was how i wrote it was so strange like during the if and when we wake writing before i knew that was going to be what that was that the ideas would just hit me so fast and i'd be like i have a really long commute so i would be driving up the highway just kind of talking ideas into my phone and then I would get to work and then during lunch I would transcribe them and I would say I wrote probably like three quarters of that book that way and I just just don't do that anymore (laughs) it's fascinating to hear that's how if when we wake came about to start with as well especially on a commute what a way to start yeah I guess it's like it lent itself to it because the poems are so short so I didn't have to give like a three minute reading while I was driving so many of them were just like you know, a title and a sentence. So I could pull that off then. The poems have gotten longer, as you saw. So those aren't, they don't, they don't come out as fully formed as they used to. Those, the new stuff has, it's way more of a writing process than I think it used to be. That's definitely something that's developed with your, with your style as well, short form and then expanded. Yeah. You know, that was all, that was all readings. I, I really didn't do any poetry readings before. It was all just writing. And then I wrote If and When We Wake. And when it came out, I, I started doing readings. And I would look at a set list and be like, shit, I have to read like 30 of these things to fill what would be like a normal reading period. And I think they... 
we got to do the the American thing. After this, we're going to shoot some fireworks off. Um, you mentioned him standing next to you in a crowd watching his opening act. I'll ask you who that opening act was, if you remember. I do um, remember. I, I, uh, so it was Bad Veins and, oh, God, I always forget the other one. I'll find the other one. I'll find the other one. <laughs> so the band was Maps and Atlases. Maps and Atlases. Uh, who I love those guys. And every time I want to listen to them, I can't remember their name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so those were the two openers. Do you remember the venue in Philly? Yes, it was the Unitarian Church. So the, the church has like a sanctuary that has shows in it. And it has a basement that has shows in it. And this one was in the basement. I think, again, something that's uh, come up in other interviews, but who knows, maybe you've changed your mind and you've mentioned one song already that's that really grabbed you right from the off, but do you say you have a favourite Scott song? Um, I do. I have a couple. Fuck This Place is close to the top, if not at the top. I do really love Cheap Gold. You You mentioned that one, and every time I hear that song... And kind of well up a little bit. Norland Wind, which is kind of a an obscure track. It's not a frightened rabbit track per se, but it was frightened rabbit with Lao covering like a traditional Scottish song. So those are probably all at the top. Modern Leper has a special spot for me because, like I said, it was the first one I found. Yeah, those would probably be up there. It's hard to pick a favorite. They're one of those rare bands that like you can get through all of the albums without really having to hit skip. So it's, it's hard to list a definitive favorite, but those are, if I was going to make myself a little greatest hits, those would be on there. As a poet yourself, as someone who likes to build collections of things, um, and I know this is a discussion that you've had with Scott himself, the brilliance and the beauty of having a collection of something, in this case, a collection of songs put together on an album that you painstake over the order and kind of the structure and how one song flows into the next and the feeling you get. Would you say you have a, a favorite Frightened Rabbit record or is there one that kind of hit you at a certain spot in your life when you needed it? It's weird. They all have a different significance for me. Like Midnight Organ Fight was the one that I found them through, which I think is the case for a lot of people. Winter of Mixed Drinks was the first album that I saw them on tour for. Pedestrian Verse was the first album that Scott and I were friends for. And those were the shows were like we were like we met up in philly and exchanged a manuscript at the pedestrian verse tour in philly and then painting of a panic attack we were in the middle of writing something else during that campaign so yeah they all have like a different it would be hard for me to pick a favorite it's kind of i don't know it's like picking a favorite kid they just kind of all matter the same but in a different way each i mean if i'm like trying to get someone to listen to Frightened Rabbit, I'm probably going to either tell them Organ Fight or Pedestrian Verse. So maybe that's a better answer to the question. There's a time and a place for every one of them and that you kind of yeah. revert to the one you need at the time that you need it. You can't get away from, there are some that are easier. I don't think I'd introduce someone to his work by going, here's, here's dance music. <laughs> it's funny that uh, dance music was like my way to grab some friends who maybe made fun of my more emo tendencies. And I was like, look, now it's heavier. 
you want to try this one and that so that grabbed like a couple of other people who might not have jumped on the frightened rabbit train with me so yeah again just like a different time and a place for each record that record isn't absolutely incredible i think it's um it's one of those cover to cover mm-hmm. i mean as frightened rabbit nailed it just showed that he could throw his hand anything and it would probably be gold yeah that is one of the cool things about frightened rabbit is that they're i don't know i don't know if everybody ingests them this way but i remember being excited to see what was new i mean i know we get hooked on our bands and we don't want them to change and i hope this modest mouse record sounds just like lonesome crowded west and then you're pissed when it doesn't but with frightened rabbit it's always been i don't i try not to ascribe to that anyway but with Frightened Rabbit, it was always so interesting. Like, let's see what they're going to do, how they're going to evolve from record to record. And it's never been like, oh, shit, they got heavy. Or, oh, no, now they they polished it up like the National does. Like, it was just exciting to see, oh, they, they got heavy or they polished it up like the National. It was really neat to watch them evolve. So we've already chatted a bit on occasions where you have seen them live. Um, so I won't kind of retread, have you caught him live before? But was there any really special shows that you caught? I mean, all of my Frightened Rabbit favorite show memories have more to do with like getting to hang out with Scott than the show experiences. I mean, the the probably the most fun I ever had in a Frightened Rabbit concert was after we launched Please Plant This Book in Brooklyn in 2018 while they were here on the um, Oregon Fight 10-year tour. So Scott and I did a show in Brooklyn and then went over to the Frightened Rabbit venue later that night for the Frightened Rabbit show. And that was just like the weight of and the nerves of the Please Plant This Book show were gone. And so we just, I could just kind of cut loose and we ended up absolutely hammered in the basement of the venue after it was over. And that's probably my favorite memory of anything related to Frightened Rabbit live. I believe you wrote a poem about that night. I did, yeah. Uh, Swimming till you can't see. Absolutely. And that obviously seems to have come from a place of hopefully deep joy and reflection on what was a great period with your friendship whilst collaborating on obviously something that was important to both of you. And obviously it's, it's now come about as a story that you're sharing. You're happy to share in joy. Did you have any reservations about putting that out no i you know i just I, so i started writing joy in 2016 when my daughter was when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter and it had always been a book that scott was supposed to illustrate we picked the title in like 20 early 2018 late 2017 early 2018 and it was supposed to be a really positive book if and when we wake was so sad that i I wanted to put something out that might give people maybe a different headspace. And then like everything just kept getting bad. You know, our daughter was born, uh, but she was sick and she had this stomach problem that made the first six months of life really challenging. And then the, the country just kept deteriorating and deteriorating. And then Scott passed away and it just felt like as much as I wanted this book to be joyous it ended up feeling so much more about trying to find it than catching it there's several poems in there that are kind of inspired by the experience of losing scott and i didn't want that to be the only thing there i wanted to find some joy 
in the experiences that we did have. And so, no, there was, there was no hesitation with it. I'm glad that I was able to write it. It was a hard poem to write. I think it's, it's easier to write sad poems about things that make you sad than it is to try to write maybe more uplifting poems that are still about the things that make you sad. So it's certainly, I mean, that poem's certainly not happy, but I guess it just kind of documents a time of life that was very happy. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it was able to get into the book. I wanted there to be something positive in there. Stop me if I'm overreaching. It feels like that's a, a reflective poem that's come from sitting back and assessing where you are. Whereas a lot of the other poems in the collection, certainly surrounding it, seem to have a sense of real sense of prescience, almost written at the time as something's happening, as a thought, a snapshot, an image of something that's happening. Whereas that's almost that you've tracked back to that night and tried to almost plot it down so that you had your own memories all in a row. Yeah, I think the book, I tried to keep it as chronological as possible, which is difficult when you write poems out of order. And when you write poems that have a lot of dates and things in them, like putting my books together into a sequence is really challenging. But I tried to make it feel like the book starts with me exploring what being a parent is going to be like and then working through those next chunk of years. You know, there's sections where I wrote about what Scott's passing felt like. And then a little bit later on, you know, you kind of go through that reflective period where maybe the tributes and all that stuff have kind of faded out. You're just left thinking. So that poem is supposed to feel like, you know, when I'm sitting in, in on the couch, kind of reminiscing about what things were like, that's kind of how it's supposed to come out. So you've seen the initial hit, and then here we are a couple of years later, kind of thinking back to how cool it was, how incredible it was to get to know that person. So I, I hope that it feels like that, that it feels like a thinking back instead of just an in-the-moment thing, because that was the intent. It really comes across, and you do get that sense of, I felt like I was there. I felt like I've been on those nights with other people. I'm definitely a nostalgic person. <laughs> um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the past. You like, wouldn't tell from your work, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely like to think more about the forward, but it's, I mean, the forward is so terrifying and bleak sometimes that it's easier to think back. And I think we can probably, most people, at least our age and on, can kind of identify with that. Like, man, I wish I, I wish I could remember more about that than I do. Either it's time or substance, whatever it is that strips those memories away. I, I think a lot of us wish we could get them back. That's one of mine. There's a, there's a joke in the, I guess we could say in the frightened rabbit community. I've heard this from multiple people that when uh, you drink with frightened rabbit, it'll be the drunkest you ever get. That was it. I mean, I've never been that drunk in my entire life. And I wish like hell that I could remember more of that basement, but it's just all blur. <laughs> and so that poem was kind of like reaching out and hoping that I could pull a little bit more out. I hope it's not too trite to say. I think a common theme between yourself and Scott's lyrics, um, or indeed the frightened rabbit albums is that there is definitely constant evolution you've already touched on a little bit of it this it's fairly obvious from where you start and the first collection to where we are now joy that things are becoming a bit more long form but they're also developing more layers of structure there is that sense that we had tiny shoots of ideas encapsulated on in the first and indeed in please plant this book as well that i think probably through necessity 
they had to be shorter, um, yeah. especially with the original concept. And then enjoy we have longer, much more thoughtful pieces. Yeah, there's a lot of Easter eggs kind of hidden throughout the book that I think people that aren't fans will, of Frightened Rabbit will just miss. And it doesn't matter. Like that, You can get it without it. But for the people that are really big fans of Scott's work, I mean, it, it's such a huge part of my life. I mean, I was a teenager early. I was either 19 or 20 when I first found them. And so, I mean, they've been a massive part of my adult life. And so it would be, it would be more challenging to not include that stuff than it is to find ways to include it. And it's, it's, I guess it's just kind of my way of hanging on to them. Like I can, I can put this in here and it'll, for someone that isn't thinking about them right now, like now you are. So that's the goal. And do you feel like the, uh, there were moments of deliberate word choice where you were picking, let's say the word woodpile over anything else that you could have said in that moment? I mean, absolutely. No, none of that stuff's act. I mean, okay. Some of that stuff is accidental. And then I would notice it in editing, but no, mo- I, I want to say that most of it isn't. I mean, the poem, there's a poem about list- sitting on the patio, listening to the owls kind of talk back and forth. I mean, that's true. That happens. I don't, I do my best not to make anything up. I just try to craft all this stuff from things that I'm actually experiencing. So there was a day where I was sitting on the patio, listening to two owls talking back and forth, but you know, following some of the poems about losing Scott with then a reflective poem about hearing these owls. That was an example of like, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't kind of put that together at the time, but here we are. Um, So some of them are happy accidents that I think help the structure come together just by how they're, they're ordered in the book. But yeah, words like woodpile brightening the corners. There's a lot of stuff in middle, middle of the night moon. There's a lot of pretty direct frightened rabbit references just because that's, you know, that was a real dream that I had. I mean, that's, it seems like a great opportunity to talk about middle of the night moon. Did you want me to read middle of the night moon while we're recording? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is middle of the night moon and let's see if people can find all the little hidden Easter eggs in here, starting with the first line. Holy is the thing on its slow dance across the night, all chalk faced and beaming, filling the bedroom with its ancient light and peeking through all the windows while I toss over and over and over in the shine, actually a little pissed at how not dark tonight's dark is. And normally I'd welcome this bright peace, having spent many a small hour pressed against the window And just last month, jostled my wife awake, shirtless and giddy, to watch the thing slip behind the earth and vanish, singing that Bonnie Tyler song as she burrowed back beneath her pillows, slinging groans and slanders, while the moon, too, tucked itself into shadow. But no, this night is different, up now for hours and begging to return to the dream where again my pal is singing songs in some place, this time a wood-paneled DFW hall. It might also be my grandma's basement. Everyone drunk and bumping around like moored boats and stormwater. And at the end of his set, we're all wrecked because he has to leave. Because of course he's dead. And even our dream selves understand locking the door to keep him longer. But just before he finally slips out into the night and before I can slip out with him, My sobbing shakes me back into this bedroom, though unprepared for the drenching light that's leaking through the windows and all over, making quick work of brightening all the corners, holding me alive here, keeping me awake. I am 
genuinely excited to hear some frabbit reaction to that because i do think that people are going to absolutely love it i hope i hope it helps people remember him in a happy way i i think a lot of these poems are processing grief and i my biggest concern is always the headspace that i put people in and so i hope that there's there's a tilt on all these that, yeah, they're sad, but I hope they're not only sad. Really, really great. A standout, certainly for that section, for the Frabbit fans, we'll say, as opposed to some of the other themes you're talking about in Joy, the, the journey that you guys went on together, and also that strange thing that seems to happen in grief with a lot of people of being revisited and how that how that can play out differently, how it can make you feel how you reflect on it later? Was it something immediately you picked up a pen and thought, I have to get something down? Or was it something that kind of gradually built? So I had that dream. We were in a packed basement that I, I, it looked like my grandparents' basement. It was wood paneled, which is the same basement that is the scene for Cognitive Dissonance, which is the first poem that I sent to him. And one of the earlier poems that he illustrated, and he was playing a set for a bunch of people. And then when it was over, it, it, it was so strange in the dream, like nobody wanted to let him leave. And I woke up with just this really deep sadness in my stomach and immediately started writing. And it, it was in the middle of the night. I mean, I woke up during, I think it was one of those super blood wolf moons or whatever they're, they give them 85 names, which I guess are all just different designations for types of moon, like what time of year. Over here, we use a lot of Native American terms for the moon so they have like the harvest moon the planting moon the flower moon the strawberry moon so there was a one of those and i woke up in the middle of the night after from this dream and it was just so bright in the bedroom and i wanted to go back to sleep because i wanted you know sometimes you can dive back into those dreams when you're rocketed out of them and i wanted it so bad but i was just up for the rest of the night it's giant it looked like broad daylight in our bedroom and i think i wrote the a really early sketch of that poem just on my phone in bed that night uh, and then over the next like month or so it got crafted into the final version of it it's a really stunning piece for a fan to read and think about it's something i've experienced myself with different musicians that have passed that i've loved and know that you're not going to get to see them and you're in that moment of it, for me it's always i can hear them on stage like it's a festival or something and i'm running to that stage because i want to you know i don't know whether they're one song in or they're about to finish or whatever and either they finish before I get there or I never get to the stage. And it's the most frustrating thing. I suppose just your brain telling you this is the way you have to deal with it. You aren't, you aren't going to get to see that again. It's really nice to have that symbolism from earlier works that you did collaborate on seep through and almost act like a through line between the new work and the old work. Is that something you felt with that section of the of the collection with joy i mean i really like self-referential work from other people i really really i've never been like a spotify person i really enjoy the full experience of an album or a book collection or something when you can feel that it's grown from something else i mean pine grove does this a lot where there'll be an album they have an album skylight and then on their next album there's a lyric that references skylight and before that it was cardinal and like they 
they build off of themselves. And I really, really like that. And I like the idea that if you had a lot of time <laughs> and I guess a lot of a lot of alcohol, you could sit down with all of these books and read them straight through and you would get like a, a narrative structure. That structure is kind of broken because I wrote two books in between Finishing Joy, Please Plant This Book and With a Difference. But if, if you read them in the right order, you'll get a full story. And I really, really like that. Even in poetry, for me, if I can create something that you can read in isolation and get something out of, and then read in the collection and get something different out of, I feel like that's the biggest measure of success for whether or not a poem is good or done, is whether it can exist alone and with the group. And so I try to do that wherever I can. Well, every great album's got to have singles. I, I don't know if Frightened Rabbit would say that their bulk majority of their fans would list Fuck This Place as their favorite song, but it does something that the other ones, not that they don't, I don't know. It just does something for me that feels right. And it's certainly not a single. <laughs> Obviously, we've we've talked about joy in general. What tiny change are you currently working towards? Um, well, let's see. I'm hoping that this this book and the the accompanying tour uh, will raise a little bit for tiny changes. A portion of the proceeds from joy are going to go to tiny changes. We're going to have a tip jar for all of our virtual readings for tiny changes, and we're going to have a bucket at the tour shows, the in person shows for tiny changes. So hopefully that'll raise a little bit of money. I try to do something every year to raise money for them. I guess in 2019, Laurie Cameron and Jeff Ziegler and I released an album called All Is Not Lost that was for it, which I'll have on tour with me a couple. I think it's, I don't know if I need to get more stock over to the UK, but I'll have them here in the States. There are still um, a few floating around the UK. I can't okay, confirm. good, good. There's a box in a basement over there. I just got to get them. I got to get them moved over to the record store. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where we are. I do a lot of handwritten poems for tiny changes throughout the year. Normally around Scott's birthday every year, I'll, I'll write a new handwritten poem and people can buy those and all the proceeds go. I just feel like if I have the time, it's kind of selfish not to. That's my yearly uh, my yearly kick over to them. All is not lost was a really helpful record for me to make, especially with all the people who helped make it. I mean, Laurie had opened up for Frightened Rabbit when they were on tour in the UK. And Jeff is, has been a longtime friend of the band. He was their tour manager early on. And so it was really cool to work with him. He's a producer in, in Philly now. So just like to have this group of people that were all profoundly impacted by this and all really wanted to do something for it felt really good. I was able to get over to the UK when it came out and Laurie and I launched it with Michael Peterson at the Scottish Storytelling Center back at the end of 2019. And that felt really good just to be in a room full of people that all got it. It was like a really big, at least for me, it felt like a big sigh that I was happy got to happen, especially 
after everything that had happened and knowing that knowing now that we led it, it was the last time really any of us did anything because the world shut down two months later. It, that, that felt really good to get that out. I was happy that we were able to make that. It was a lot of work. I've never had anything pressed on vinyl before. So it was a, the last couple of projects from having poems printed on seed packets to then poems put on vinyl. Experimenting with form was fun, but it was also kind of difficult. So I'm happy that it worked out, but it was, it was challenging to get it there. And it's, it's lovely to have that permanent testament, isn't it? Something that's hopefully going to stick in people's collections and be trotted out every once in a while to be spun around again. And I think it's it feels just a little bit different than releasing digital media that might, you know, be consumed all in one go or be kind of in constant rotation, but maybe not specifically chosen. Whereas it does feel nice to have something that hopefully someone picks up off a shelf and thinks that today's the day I need this. So I'm going to put it on. Yeah, we that's we kind of talked about vinyl versus just a regular digital release. And this just felt, like you said, like something a little more special that you can have a thing to hold on to that has art. So that was, that was the goal. And the Frabbit community have shown that they are big vinyl fans. For everyone listening, there are definitely still some out in the UK. Go and track them down. Um, I think there's still some over in America, if I remember seeing on the, the American website. But we'll check that and we'll, we'll add that in at the end of the show. That leads us quite nicely into, and I'm aware from other interviews that you've done, that you consider yourself a frabbit, you'd consider yourself a, someone who's engaged a little bit within the communities. And I don't mind saying that my decision to reach out to you uh, over the internet as, uh, as your decision to reach out to Frighten Rabbit over the internet all those years ago was influenced by seeing that you were engaged in the community. And I instantly thought, well, we've not perhaps spotted anyone who we have been reaching out to being active within the community still. The communities, whether that's via Facebook or Reddit or all across the internet, or if it's just local friends groups who've who've put on tribute shows, have all had amazing different ways of commemorating Scott. Is there anything that you've been involved with on that side? Is there anything that you've done as a result of a different community setting it up? Or is there anything that's out there at the moment that you're interested in? I mean, I definitely am a fan. I think that the Frightened Rabbit community is just such a wonderful grouping of people that are so passionate and care so much. They're just so kind. But yes, I was a fan before I knew Scott. I'm still a big fan. I have a really hard time listening to any of the music anymore, but I still try to be an active member of the community wherever I can. We, I, I did a handful of shows after Please Plant This Book came out and after Scott passed away to kind of raise that that book had already raised money for suicide prevention. That was the goal of it. But after he passed away, I just kind of went full tilt into it, which was difficult, but felt helpful. I don't know. I'm I'm a I'm not good at handling grief. I, I always need to feel like I'm doing something. I can't just sit and grieve. And so that tour kind of helped me through some of the earlier portions of it, but they were primarily attended by frightened rabbit people. And so just feeling like that community support was really nice and really helpful. And I had so many people sending me messages, just checking in people that I don't, don't know. Um, and it just felt really good to be part of something bigger, to feel that kind of collective there for you. For the listener, you're currently in your place of work, sat behind you in the background. This isn't a filter background. There is a Scott sticker. Oh yeah, there is one back there, isn't there? 
which is <laughs> absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, this so this is my classroom. You can't see it from here, but there's a giant, I guess it's about a nine foot tall mural on the back wall of the Be Kind hands. That is amazing. Yeah, one of my students projected it onto the wall and then traced it and then did a full floor to ceiling URL of it. And I love whenever the a new crop of students comes in and they say, what's with that? And then I get to explain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I try to try to keep them here as much as I can. One final question from us, and then we'll let you go. Obviously you're currently in promotion mode for joy. And you've obviously mentioned that you uh, work towards other Scott related events throughout the year, but is there anything else in the future on the horizon that ties in with, with Scott causes, or is there anything that you'd like to do down the line as another little commemoration? Uh, yeah, well, Yes, right now we're in triage mode in the States. And I know one of the causes that Scott promoted when he was here was every town for gun safety. It's over in the news over here at the moment with um, events down in Texas. It hit hard reading curriculum this morning at the same time as kind of seeing that on the news over here. I imagine it's probably equally hard hitting over there for you as well. Absolutely. I'm happy to talk about it. If you want, I don't mind at some point. Absolutely. We'll queue up as a question then. I can't, I mean, just can't imagine what it's like in your profession, but also just having kids and knowing they're heading into that world soon. And... Yeah, my daughter's in kindergarten at the local um, elementary school. She's so she's three years younger than those kids in the same type of building. It's really difficult. And then watching the news, hearing people say that we can't do things, can't get rid of this type of gun, we can't do these regulations, that would be madness. We can't get rid of that. We should arm teachers. Like, man, I get emails every day from teachers. Hey, has anybody seen my keys? I can't find my phone. (laughs) Yeah, give us guns. Such a part of American culture at this point that you can't not talk about it. It's just so ingrained in it and it's just it's not fair for the kids this is supposed to be the time of their life where they're figuring out who they are they're learning about what their spot in the world looks like and instead of getting that opportunity every couple weeks we huddle in the corner and practice active shooter drills and they installed a hook on my door that i'm supposed to strap my belt around to keep the door that's what we're living through in this country just because We can't convince other people that their hobbies are less important or that their right to defend themselves against, I don't even know what, the American military, they're going to, they're going to defend themselves against the American military with their guns. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to education. The more emphasis that you can put on fostering real education, the better shot you have at having people who are more capable to navigate the world. And the less likely you are to have people that feel so alienated from it that they do things like this. I mean, you're not going to solve violence by getting rid of guns or knives, but it seems like when you're in triage mode, it could at least help calm everything down. Maybe let us figure out, let's get rid of the AR-15s and then we can talk about how to fix the bigger problem. But at least we put the fire out. I'd like to at least put the fire out before we can figure out what keeps causing them. I don't exactly have a map for yet, but I'd like to do something for gun violence soon. That's kind of my immediate goal. All I'm really thinking about right now, the tour is pretty much planned. So I kind of have my checklist of interviews and stuff over the next couple of months, but creatively my brain is on guns right now. 
And I'd really like to find a way to raise money for, for every town where I can, because I think it's a really important cause that we have to figure out. You have a poem in joy called Curriculum that really hits on that subject. It's going to be, it's not exactly Frightened Rabbit, but it's something that I know Scott cared about. And it's just so important that that's where, that's where my brain is right now. There's a lot of discussion of change there. So hopefully <laughs> a nice segue into some uh, tiny changes related chat. The latest collection, Joy, is was originally planned to be another collaboration with Scott. Uh, apparently unillustrated other than the cover. Do you want to talk us through the cover art? Sure. Yeah, art was definitely something that was a challenge because it was supposed to be a Scott book. I had a hard time envisioning it as anything else. I thought about not having anything on the cover except just, you know, the text Joy. But I had seen an article a couple of years ago that for some reason I just saved about this this person from the UK who dries and presses flowers and then arranges them into images. So she has like really incredible pictures of animals and wildlife and nature that have just been completely constructed from like dried flowers and ferns and things. So I reached out to her, her name's Helen Opcorn Siri, and asked her if she'd be interested. And wonderfully enough, I don't know that I've advertised this enough. Instead of getting paid, she actually did this for a Tiny Changes donation. So she she offered up all the artwork in exchange for just a donation to Tiny Changes. So she's a really incredible person and an incredible uh, artist. But yeah, so there's no pictures or anything on the interior. And the book cover itself is just made up of a bunch of dried plants and mouse bones which I wasn't sure when I sent that email if I was going to get a like, hey, never mind response. Like <laughs> I, she sent me some really pretty images and I, I sent a, a response back saying, is there a way that we could incorporate bones? Luckily, she was really excited about it and said that it's something that she'd wanted to do for a while. So the word joy on the front is made out of mouse bones, which I think in my brain was supposed to be a nod to the first illustration that I got back from Scott, which was a smashed mouse in If and When We Wake. So that's there. She she killed it with this art. It looks so incredible. I mean, it's absolutely visually stunning. You've alluded to the hat tip there to the mouse drawing from inside If and When We Wake, but also the cover as well is obviously a, a mixture between uh, bones falling from a tomato plant? Uh, yeah, there, so we, I had to put in the tomato plant. <laughs> it had to be there. Yeah, I wanted it to look like a horror movie cover, which sounds like a joke, but it's not. The book is called Joy, but it's only kind of happy. And I really wanted it to be that mixture of trying to look for joy or meaning or fulfillment in a world that seems like it's actively trying to keep you from finding it. So that's the symbolism of the word joy written out in the bones of a dead animal, I hope is apparent and obvious to anybody who picks this up. It seems at least from the outside to be a very deliberate choice along with the color scheme of the the outside of the book as well, but it's obviously a lot darker than previous releases. It's got that almost a foreboding sense about it. So the word joy stands off the page, but perhaps with already half a mind too. We might have to struggle a bit with you in order to get to the joy. I hope you get there. I hope it gets there. That was the goal. I think life is so interesting in that we know how it ends, but we keep going anyway. And I think that's supposed to be what joy is about. Knowing how this is going to end, but pushing for as meaningful of an experience as we can get while we're here. So there's some darkness in there. I hope there's some light. I think this is probably the happiest book I've ever written. I definitely 
from the reviews that came back, everybody talked about hope. So that feels good to know that the people that have read it are getting what I was looking for. But yeah, there's definitely some darkness in here. I think it's not too far of a stretch to say that it's probably going to be added to the list of absolutely essential reading for all the Frabbits out there. <laughs> if you're a fan of Frightened Rabbit, if Scott's songs touched you, then this is one that you've got to seek out joy, preferably from uh, places that don't hoard more of the money away for themselves so that more of that money gets across to tiny changes. Do you want to tell us where the best place they can pick joy? So unfortunately, right now, the best place for folks in the UK or actually anywhere international outside of the States is is Amazon. I hate that. In States, though, you can get it wherever books are sold. So Unsolicited Press is the publisher that put this out, so you can get it directly from them. They're probably the best place to get it, but indie bookstores are always our go-to advertisement. They uh, they probably won't have it in stock right away, but you can certainly ask them to order it. But yeah, if you're outside of the States right now, the, really the only place to get it is through Amazon, through your country's Amazon site, unfortunately, but hopefully we can partner up with some indie stores over there over the next couple of months and see if we can avoid Amazon wherever possible. And you mentioned you're taking the book on tour. Uh, where can people catch you? So it's a little East Coast run. I'll be in Philadelphia. So each each one of these in-person, actually, and virtual shows, I'm accompanied by somebody else. So in Philly, I'll be performing on June 21st, which is Solstice. And it's the book launch show at Philomoca, which is an old mausoleum sales building. And I'll be with Keola and Jeff Ziegler. So Jeff, who I did that record with, will be there. Then I'll be doing a couple virtual shows in the beginning of July with... Tyler Knott Gregson and Kelly Russell Agadon. After that, I'm heading up to Boston on July 12th and 13th. I'll be at Club Passum with Darling Side. And then I finish up on July 15th in Brooklyn with Evan Stevens Hall, who is of Pine Grove. If you are in any of those cities and you're listening to this before those dates, then head out. And if you're discovering this after the fact, then obviously head over to francisdelario.com. Anything else that you'd like to plug whilst you're here? Donate to Tiny Changes. There's a mental health crisis in this entire world right now, and it's, it's particularly affecting children. So Tiny Changes is a wonderful way to get money that can be used for grants to help find ways to help kids do better, feel better. It's so important to remember that all of this stuff is just health. You know, it's your, your brain is a part of your body. I can't imagine having cancer and not talking about it, not doing anything about it, feeling scared that people were going to judge me because I had cancer. But that's been the state of mental health for so long that it's inspires some hope to see more people willing to talk about it, to destigmatize it so that people feel more comfortable getting help for it. Because it's remarkable what things like therapy and medication and treatment can do for people if they're, if they're comfortable seeking it out. So the more that we can help people find that comfort and foster those, the, that search for treatment, I think the better place we'll be in as a society. We just have to be better about taking care of each other. Absolutely. Here in the States, there's also the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a cause that I felt really strongly about for a long time. And after you're done doing that, if you have some leftover if you could kick it over to every town for gun safety, that would be wonderful to try and address some of the other larger issues that are contributing to the mental health crisis that we're seeing in our children. 
Thanks very much, Franz. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Fran Delario there. A massive thank you once again to Fran for his time, his openness, and desire to help out, both on the podcast and to Tiny Changes so consistently. You can find links to all of Fran's work at francisdelario.com, which spelt out is F-R-A-N-C-I-S-D-A-U-L-E-R-I-O.com. Firstly, go order or pre-order Joy by Francis Delario from wherever you can obtain it. Or, if you're in Philly on the 21st of June, Boston on the 12th or 13th of July, or Brooklyn on the 15th of July, go and see him in the flesh. If you're not in those cities, there's two virtual book launches on the 23rd of June and the 7th of July. Check out Fran's website for details on those. Then, if you're in the mood for more of Fran's poetic offerings, track down a copy of All Is Not Lost, the vinyl collaboration with Laurie Cameron and Jeff Ziegler. So... On to this episode's community submissions from across the Frabbit universe. I briefly spoke to Aidy Cartwright, who many of you will know in the Frabbit community, whether that's through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or elsewhere, and he told me what he's going to be getting up to at Glastonbury this year in aid of tiny changes. I volunteered at Glastonbury, well, I've been to every single Glastonbury since 1989. I haven't missed one yet. The last few years, I've volunteered as a litter picker, get up at six o'clock in the morning and tidy up after everybody on the pyramid stage until... Uh, noon and then get to enjoy the festival the charity that i worked for there before called small steps and basically they provided footwear and immunization schooling and things like that for all the kids who worked on the tips across the world because they figured they're going to do it so do it safely unfortunately they couldn't do it this year i went back to the people who organized the recycling crew at glastonbury and said i've got a charity that's perfect Ties in with the music. You're aware of Frightened Rabbit. They've played, but they played officially three times, but they usually did a few different sets every time they played. And they said, yes, they've given me a team of, well, they give me a team to organise of 25 people. We're going there this year to do some litter picking. There's a bit more to what we're doing as well. We've designed some T-shirts. They're going to be made available pretty soon through the Facebook groups and on the Scots benches and things like that there, um, Instagram accounts and stuff like that. So we'll, we'll get the message out there with the T-shirts. We're also launching something called A Pint for a Pal. When you go to a festival or a concert, there's always somebody who didn't get a ticket, somebody who can't make it, or somebody who's no longer with us. So what you can do is buy your pal a virtual pint. You buy yourself a drink, cheers up to the camera, take some pictures of yourself or whoever, wherever you are, tag your friend who can't be there in it, and donate the money of what would have been their tipple to the charity. The charity this year we're starting off with is Tiny Changes. So you can have a virtual pint with your pal either teasing them because they're going to get a ticket for Glastonbury or wherever you are, or just missing them. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing this year. Regular Glasto punters are already there. Is, it, is there any way they can pitch in if they just want to do something to help out tiny changes? Just get the word out there. We're doing the T-shirts, and the T-shirt is going to have on the back of them the uh, QR code. And you scan the QR code, it takes you straight through to the Instagram, which will explain what's going on and a link through then to payments. And so hopefully they'll be able to see then what other people have done. There'll be more information coming out soon via all the usual channels. 
then to keep an eye out for it because we want to do a big launch on it. If we can, what we'd like to do is get every of the Facebook groups, everyone on Instagram, all the frabbits across the world, all the people who want to get to Glastonbury, if we can get them to do it at the same time on the Tuesday evening and just tag it on everything, then if we can get it trending, that'll be like a minor miracle. <laughs> they can do their bit. We can get across that we're launching it on the Tuesday evening with Glastonbury, but keep an eye on all the social media because we'll be publishing it on there and all your listeners are the first to know about it. So time to keep it quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Nice little exclusive. Thanks to AD Cartwright there, our first community submission, for telling us what he's getting up to at Glastonbury this year in aid of Tiny Changes. Check out Paint for a Pal, check out the t-shirt being released in conjunction with it, and check out our socials and all the Frabbit sites across the internet for more info on that when it becomes available. Now for a couple of submissions of our own. Please help spread the word by liking us across social media, subscribing for notifications of upcoming episodes via our website, thescottpod.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, hopefully. We're also looking to add a collage of Scott slash Frabbit related tattoos to the artwork on the website. If you've got a Frabbit tattoo and you'd be happy to share an image of it, get in touch with us. Also, we're new. We're a small team of contributors. So if anyone listening wants to provide feedback or volunteer assistance, get in touch with us as well. If any of the podcast has inspired you to contribute, we're welcoming any special guest recommendations, any community submissions, and any links to listener covers via our socials or via the dedicated email address, thescottpod at gmail.com. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for on this episode of the Scott Pod. Thanks once again to our special guest, Frandelario. Don't forget to go and check out Joy and all of the details for upcoming shows, which are on his website. Thanks once again for all of our community submissions. Please go and check out our website for more details on those. Special thank yous to Jane Coates for helping with the website and the socials. Thanks to Fran Atkinson for helping edit this podcast. Thank you to Civil Service for providing the background music. And thank you to you for listening. And now here's our listener cover to play us out. You'll remember during the conversation with special guest Fran Delario, he mentioned his favourite Scott song was Fuck This Place. His listener cover of Fuck This Place by Sensitive Souls. Take it away. Hi, my name is Jamie Stratton from The Sensitive Souls and the song Fuck This Place by Frank Nabbit has a special place in my heart for a song that makes you feel less lost and that you're not the only one. You can catch your music on Spotify, Apple Music, and you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
Take me home